good evening. I think we'll get going. Uh, before we begin the proceedings, I just want to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners uh, of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. Uh, and we like to say that uh, this has been a place of learning, and not just a place of learning, but a place of learning about the relationship between the human and the non-human, human beings and their environment uh, for over 50,000 years. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics, and I'm the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, we work on a range of issues, a number of research nodes ranging from climate change to sustainable business, from animals to maritime culture, from food to cities, all focusing primarily on the environmental humanities and social sciences. So we're very happy to sponsor this evening, along with Sydney Ideas and the Sydney Science Festival. Uh, I'm just going to explain a bit how the night will run. Uh, we'll have our featured speaker first for about 40 minutes. Uh, Professor Duncan Iverson will offer a response, and then we'll have some time uh, for Q&A with the audience. Feel free, I think it's up there somewhere, feel free to tweet along the way. Um, either there's Sydney Science Festival or uh, Sydney Environment Institute. So let me introduce both of the speakers now. First, our respondent, Professor Duncan Iveson, is currently the DVC research here at the University of Sydney, uh, taking time away from his previous position as the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I've had the pleasure of working for Duncan in both capacities, um, but unlike any other dean, I don't know if I've said this to you in person, but, uh, or university administrator I've ever had, I actually enjoy reading Duncan's uh, theoretical work, his academic work, and I've enjoyed and, and learned um, from that. Uh, in particular, work on justice, on multiculturalism, and on indigenous rights. He's also got a keen interest in environmental studies and politics, and his support for the subject has really been crucial to the growth of our capacity and our reputation in environmental studies here at the University of Sydney. Our featured speaker, Melissa Lane, is the class of 1943 professor of politics at Princeton, where she's also associated with the faculty in classics and philosophy. Previously, she taught in the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge, where she was a fellow of King's College. She was awarded a, a 2012 Guggenheim Fellowship in the field of classics. She's a co-convener of the Princeton Climate Futures Initiative and was for many years a faculty contributor of the uh, Cambridge Program for Sustainability Leadership. She's published on Ethics of Science and Democracy in the journals uh, Episteme and Politics, Philosophy, and Economics, on classics and sustainability in her book, Eco-Republic, which I'll come back to, and on ancient and political thought more broadly in several monographs, edit collections, and many articles, most recently Greek and Roman political ideas. She's given public lectures on climate change, ethics, and classics at many universities and public forums, including the Architectural League of New York, and is a member of the Climate Change Working Group of the Social Sciences Research Council. She's a frequent contributor to Melvin Bragg In Our Time on BBC4, to the podcast series Philosophy Bites, and to other public media, including a recent op-ed in the New York Times uh, on the subject of ancient politics and economic inequality, so something that's been around for a while. Most recently, she's been a residence at the University of Auckland as a Hood Fellow, also delivering the annual Chapman Lecture in Politics, and has given papers uh, just this last month at University of Otago and ANU, as well as here at Sydney. So I was lucky enough as an undergraduate 
to have some excellent teachers in ancient political theory uh, when I was a student at the University of California at Santa Cruz, including Hannah Pitkin and Peter Eubin. And Eubin, in particular, was widely admired by students for making the Greeks relevant, uh, and not just to contemporary politics, but to our everyday lives as well. Melissa Lane takes that focus to a whole other dimension. In her work on the birth of politics, Lane not only brings classic ideas to life and their origins, but does so with an eye towards their relevance and their impact today. And more particularly relevant for the topic tonight, her book on the eco-republic, or what the ancients can teach us about ethics, virtue, and sustainable living, thoroughly engages with Plato in particular. And as one of the reviews notes, and this was a great one, um, that she not only separates the useful in Plato from the useless, (laughs) but also demonstrates that the useful contains a surprising amount of what we need if we are to survive. And in particular, one of the things that fascinates me, because they're ancient ideas, but they're also ideas that are reflected in the contemporary environmental movements that I study, uh, is a focus uh, on the crucial notions of the healthy society uh, and the public good. So it's with a deep sense of appreciation, with both of my hats as a, a political theorist and a professor of environmental politics, that I welcome tonight's speaker. The topic actually follows up on the eco-republic, this time finding the useful in Aristotle, Uh, as we take on one of the more vexing issues in contemporary climate politics, how we communicate not just values and ethics, um, but basic facts. Professor Melissa Lane. Thank you so much, David. That was a really wonderful um, sense of the interaction of our work. This is the first time we've had the chance to meet, but our interests have really um, run along parallel lines And it's a special pleasure also that Duncan Iveson, whom I've known for many years, also as a fellow political theorist, will be the respondent. Um, I noticed a recent ARC project that he led called The Uneasy Alliance Between Democracy and Justice. And I thought that in a sense you could call my topic The Uneasy Alliance Between Democracy and Science. Um, And the question of how democratic citizens, lay people for the most part, relate to expert knowledge, how that expert knowledge can be communicated, and how they can make judgments and decisions about it, really is a question that goes back right to the foundation of democratic politics. And so turning to Aristotle, um, one of the first great thinkers and um, moderate defenders of democracy, um, I think is, is uh, a very helpful way um, to understand and to, for us today to ruminate on this question. So let me say a moment more about why I turn to Aristotle, and then I'll give you a plan for the talk. Um, so a number of my colleagues in philosophy and classics sidle up to me when they hear this topic and say, I wasn't sure that Aristotle wrote about climate change. And I usually say, oh, you missed 1427b in the Nicomachean Ethics. There it is. Um, But of course, that's not my point. Um, The point is rather um, that Aristotle helped us to think about rhetoric, um, as he called it, the art of speaking, the art of communication, really as the foundational challenge um, for democratic politics. And, of course, he did that at a moment when 
rhetoric and sophistry, both terms that were given a bad name even at that time by his own teacher, Plato, um, were very much under attack. And the question of putative experts, false experts, misleading speech, deceptive speech, all of that was swirling around um, the life and death decisions that the Athenian demos had to make. And so in defending rhetoric, Aristotle was taking on Plato's legacy and trying to say, for all the ways that rhetoric can be misused and will be misused, and we've seen that, of course, in climate change communication or miscommunication, for all those ways, it's still a challenge that we can't avoid. We have to find a way to communicate expert knowledge to ordinary people. And so it's in that way that I think turning back to Aristotle um, can help us. So the purpose of this talk is not to be a how-to guide to communicate science. And I know that there are people in the audience who are communicating science professionally, as scientists, as um, uh, working for NGOs, working in government at the university. And I hope that we can really draw out people's experiences and expertise in the course of the discussion. Um, I will consider some real examples and cases that I've learned from my scientist colleagues, but really what I can offer as a political theorist is to offer a shift in perspective, to reflect on some of the philosophical conundrums that the challenge of posing climate, uh, communicating climate change poses. And I hope that that taking a step back and getting a shift in perspective will be useful for those of you who are on the front lines of trying to deal um, with this question. So in this particular paper, um, I'm going to begin in a moment with an example from the um, fourth assessment report of the IPCC, where scientists on working group one faced a real challenge of how to communicate um, some uncertainties about the science um, and then I'll describe um, what really happened, which was a journey that I went on together with my colleague Michael Lamb, and we co-authored a lot of the work that this paper um, reports, um, which was that we started looking into the work of both philosophers and psychologists on the ethics of communication, and in particular the ethics of communicating science and even specifically climate change, and what we ended up finding was that we felt there were mirror image gaps in both of those literatures. So just in a nutshell, the, psych the philosophers on ethics think only about the cognitive dimension of communication, and they don't take seriously enough the problem of trust. Um, while the psychologists do think about the problem of trust, but we found they weren't explicit enough about the ethical guidelines. And so we felt that that left a gap that Aristotle might help us to fill. And so that's the plan of the talk. I'll talk about this case. Bear it in mind because I'm going to come back to it at the end. Then I'll briefly report on the state of play in psychology and philosophy trying to help us 
And then the largest part of the talk will be about Aristotle. So it'll take us a few minutes to get to Aristotle, but then we'll dig in to his rhetoric, um, which is his work where he explores um, and gives counsel as to how to make communication credible. And then we'll come back at the end to see how Aristotle might counsel us to think about this IPCC case and some other cases. Okay, so this is, again, going back to the 2007 fourth assessment report. Um, That's what started us off on this work. Um, and And at the time, working group one, which is the group that assesses the physical basis of climate science, Um, was presenting a table of possible future sea level rise um, due to climate change. And there were three main physical factors that they knew would contribute to the sea level rise, and two of them um, were well understood, and they were able to put numbers with a reasonable degree of confidence, of course specifying the levels of certainty on those factors, But there was one factor, which was ice sheet melting in Greenland and Antarctica, that at the time had just been recognized as a major potential source of sea level rise. Um, Ice was starting to melt faster, and huge ice sheets were starting to disappear more quickly than people had thought would be possible. And so it was recognized that this was a very serious issue, but the science wasn't yet able to quantify that to the same level of precision that the other two factors um, were uh, capable of. And so the scientists really faced a quandary If they're making a table, which they know is going to be used by policymakers, by the public, to try to get a sense of what is this threat, what might it mean for coastal cities um, like Sydney, um, how should they do that? Should they, so one option would be they just put the numbers on what they can put the numbers and then say, there's this other potential, but we can't give you any guidance as to what it is. We know it could be large, but we just can't say. Or perhaps they should just refuse to estimate sea level rise at all on the grounds that any numbers they would give could be so misleading because there would be this major factor um, that would be left out. So think about that case for a bit, and I'll come back to it at the end of the talk. If you had been one of those scientists, um, what would you have chosen to do? Um, And again, I do want to say I really appreciate the range and value of experience represented in this audience. And I meant to say at the beginning, the chance to speak as part of this Sydney Science Festival, as well as the Sydney Ideas. Um, It's one of the, Princeton, where I teach now, is great, but it's a very small town. And it's wonderful to have the chance to talk about these questions in the sense of a metropolitan community where there are people from so many different parts of the community um, who can easily come together um, for this conversation. Okay, so that's the problem. So we set off to try to find some guidance from philosophy and psychology, and we had to kind of take a step back from the case just to think about what are the principles of communicating science that could potentially inform um, this kind of judgment. And so when we looked at the philosophers, um, the most helpful perspective um, that we came across is in the work of Honora O'Neill, a former colleague at Cambridge. 
And here's her formula. Um, it's a little bit of a tongue twister, so I'll, I'll unpack it um, as I go. So her formula is communication is ethically acceptable only when it aims to be accessible to and accessible by its audiences. So you can see the tongue twister, okay? So accessible to the audience means the perspective of the audience is key. You can't communicate if the audience can't understand what you're saying. But then also accessible by. And what I take that to mean is that the audience are the judges of the communication. They're not the passive recipients. They will decide whether this is something that they're willing to listen to, to take account of, or not. And what I'm going to suggest in the course of this talk, and, and Aristotle, I think, will deepen this, this understanding for us, that audiences will judge from the standpoint of their practical commitments as well as their intellectual ones. So, of course, we can learn about, enjoy learning about science for its own sake. But when scientific claims have implications for the organization of human society on a very deep and broad scale, then we have to expect that people are going to hear them with at least one ear towards what is this going to mean for me, for us? How practically is this going to affect um, the decisions that we as individuals, as political communities might need to make. Okay, so, so far, so good. And we can sum that up by saying communication is relational. It's about the relationship between the speaker and the auditor, the hearer. And it's practical in some fundamental way. Um, but what we get, then came to find in this phil philosophical literature was that the measure of whether communication was going to work on those, um, in those ways was basically one-dimensional. It was really focused only on the truth content, the kind of cognitive claims of the communication. So the thought was, if it's true, it's going to be useful and practical. If it's not, then audiences um, might reject it if they can recognize its truth. But in contrast, what we find from social psychologists is that there's not just one dimension to judging the credibility of a communicator. There are two. And so let me explain then how that works and why that's so important, especially for communicating climate change. So social psychologists identify what they call two fundamental dimensions of all social judgment. And this is not just communication, but any human interaction. Broadly speaking, there's competence on the one hand, but there's warmth on the other. And I was surprised to learn that warmth in social psychology is actually a technical term. Um, so it has a kind of precise um, meaning. Um, the definition is, well, the, the it doesn't, the definition that, they, that is given doesn't make it that much um, more specific, but it's a judgment of whether um, some relationship or communication is socially good or bad as opposed to intellectually good or bad. So that's com competence versus warmth. 
And so that means it's not enough to communicate with competence. You can't just rest on your scientific laurels. Because if your warmth is mistrusted or not judged adequate, the communication as a whole won't be found credible. And so this leads to a problem that has been dubbed cold competence. And that's a problem where people see a speaker, often on the basis of some kind of group that they belong to, as competent, but they see them as cold, meaning they don't trust that they share the broad values, goals, concern for the broad interests of the listeners. And if that's the case, then their communication may well be distrusted or rejected. Now, I think that's a message that's hard for many of us, especially those whose trade is ideas, to really take seriously. We work so hard at being competent. You know, we think everything depends on having our footnotes right and, in, you know, in my case, having the Greek translation right and so on. That's what it seems to be what communication really takes. But what this psychology research and its a broad consensus in social psychology is telling us is that communication isn't just practical and relational. It also has to be whole personal. So I heard recently at Auckland that any good theory, you should be able to put it on a bumper sticker. So I was trying to think, what's the bumper sticker for my talk? And so far what I had was communication is practical, relational, and whole personal. And then I thought, that's actually not a very good bumper sticker. Um, But then I thought, perhaps climate change will mean that bumper stickers become obsolete um, anyway. So uh, maybe that's all right. Um, Okay. Now, bear with me just for a few more minutes on the this basic dynamic between competence and warmth. Because what's interesting is that um, the psychologists Susan Fisk and Sidney Dupree have shown that this precise problem, this tension of cold competence, actually affects people's perceptions of scientists and specifically of climate scientists. So this is not just a theoretical problem. It's a real documented problem in communicating climate change. Um, And so the thought is, well, generally speaking, um, listeners will. This is the good news for those of us who live and die by our footnotes, okay? The good news is most audiences, hopefully including the present one, do have a default attitude that they will defer to a perception of competence and expertise um, from a speaker, okay? So that is generally our default attitude. But what happens if a challenge to the good intent of the speaker is raised or created. And of course, that's one of the things that manufactured denial of climate science has done. It's precisely raised questions about the intent of climate scientists and whether they can be trusted. And once that happens, it's not enough for the speaker to kind of ignore it or gloss over it and just fall back on her competence. Because at that point, once a challenge has been raised to her warmth and her positive intent, the audience might well become suspicious. And that's what this research on climate scientists and scientists generally um, has shown. So once challenges are raised about their intent, then people might start to worry. And so some of the alleged motives that they might be um, attributed 
include alleged motives to lie with statistics, complicate a simple story, show superiority, gain research money, pursue a liberal agenda, provoke the public, and hurt big corporations. Okay, and those all these fears flood in once the positive intent has been challenged. And again, the, the, the point is that once that happens, it's not enough for climate scientists to take the high ground and try to ignore that because everything they say might now be filtered through that lens of suspicion and distrust. Okay, well, so how should they deal with that? What do the psychologists suggest? Well, in general, and um, in general, and this is characteristic of the social psychology of climate change communication generally, what they suggest is a kind of act of reframing. So, for example, all these negative attributes are much more associated with um, being a scientist and a researcher, but there are much more positive views towards people who are teachers, for example. So one suggestion is let's just reframe the climate scientists as teachers. And, of course, many of them are teachers, so there's nothing intrinsically um, wrong with doing that. But my concern about this kind of reframing strategy more generally is that I think it doesn't really get to the bottom of the public concern and the potential grounds for distrust. Because what the reframing strategy really is, is experts coming up with ways in a technocratic sort of way of framing things to try to increase the likelihood that people will accept what they say. And if the public perceives those um, efforts precisely as deceptive or manipulative or pandering in some way, that could potentially harden their resistance. So they might feel even more, oh, your intent is just to persuade me whatever it takes why should I trust that you really have my interests at heart if you're just willing to use any tool in your tool bag to get me to agree? Okay, so my worry is that reframing may be all very well in any given case, in any one-off kind of case, but the whole strategy of reframing raises deeper ethical questions that I think we need to address And so far, I have to say that um, in reading the psychology, and of course I'm not a psychologist, but what what I find is that um, psychologists are very aware of ethics as a kind of broad framing question, but they haven't yet integrated it into their research agenda. So when um, volumes on climate change and psychology call for interdisciplinary research, Um, They say we need to do research with social sciences, engineering, and natural sciences. They never say with philosophy and ethics and political theory. But that's actually, I think, what we need. We need to take seriously the ethical questions that reframing raises and try to address them. Okay, but let's say that we actually um, do that. Let's, so let's go back just for one more moment to the philosophers, and then I'm going to get to Aristotle um, just in another couple of minutes. So 
if we say, well, okay, when is it ethical to, and unethical to reframe and frame climate communication in these different kinds of ways? So just to give you some other examples of the framing suggestions. So for example, um, Dan Cahan, um, who's a Yale, at Yale Law School and does a lot of this work, has suggested, well, when we make lists of policy responses, we should, this is in the U.S. context, we should include nuclear power because that's going to signal to people who are more um, attached to individualist values that their values are being affirmed. So that's the kind of reframing um, debates that um, are, go on in this literature. Now, the challenge, though, I think, is that it's actually quite difficult. If you then try to say, well, okay, what's, where does the line lie here? What is manipulative framing and what is acceptable framing? It's actually quite hard to come up with a test to distinguish between them. So, for example, one um, significant work on manipulation suggests that um, we might look at the factors is the interference deceptive? And is it contrary to the putative will of those who are subject to it? But one of the challenges of applying those criteria to the case of communication is that the whole point of communication is that you want to potentially, you know that a communication may change someone's future will. So if someone doesn't know much about climate change, and then she learns about it, her will in terms of what taxes she might be willing to accept, what um, policies in terms of social resilience she might come to demand is likely to change. So it's hard to use someone's putative will now as a test for what would make communication manipulative um, or deceptive. So in that sense, I, what I came to think is that um, looking at these issues in this one-off kind of, is this reframing deceptive or manipulative, is, is not going to get us very far. There's going to be this deeper underlying problem about how people are willing, to, how far they're willing to trust in the credibility of communication. And so I came to think what, what we need is a more fundamental consideration of what makes communication persuasive. And finally, then, that brings me now to Aristotle and his rhetoric. And I'm going to now spend some time developing Aristotle's perspective and trying to show how he could um, give us this transformed perspective on why communication needs to be ethical in order to also be effective. So, Finally, then, the, the second half of the talk is the resources of Aristotle's rhetoric. And as I said earlier, don't be misled by this term rhetoric. Again, rhetoric has gotten a bad name, in, certainly in modern philosophy, um, in public life generally sometimes. But really, it, what Aristotle means by it is the basic nature of communication. And in particular, it's communication among people who are political equals, as they were in Athenian democracy, but epistemic unequals. And that's really the fundamental problem of communication that we're thinking about in this case. How do experts communicate to non-experts? And how do the non-experts um, judge whether that communication is trustworthy and credible?
So Aristotle sees this as a very broad and universally relevant kind of art. He says at the beginning of the work that all people, in some way, share in both dialectic um, and rhetoric. Um, now, what I, I'm going to begin by suggesting that his account is congenial to the partial insights that I've drawn out of the modern literatures so far, and then I want to show ways that he took them further. So I think that he very much developed and really deepened this perspective as on the audience as the judges of the persuasive effort and the need to take that very seriously. And again, this is a counterintuitive idea, especially for science communication, because again, we think, how can the audience be judges if they're not the experts? And in another context, in his politics, Aristotle actually grappled with exactly this. He looked at the objection, surely only a doctor can judge the claims of another doctor. Surely only an architect can judge the claims of another architect. So how can a democratic public make decisions about public architecture, about public health, when they're not the experts? So he's very much alive to exactly this dilemma. And now, in, in his day, the rhetoric that he's talking about was actually very often deployed in a very literal sense. So especially in the Athenian courtroom, where the jurors were quite literally the judges of the speeches that were made, and that could even end um, in a death sentence, as of course it famously did for Socrates. Um, now, I'm using this word judges now, not necessarily in that kind of literal sense, but of course, we do still think that the democratic public has in some sense life and death powers, right? If they block their ears to climate change, that will be a death sentence for many people who are especially vulnerable um, to its effects. So the idea of the audience's judge, I think, isn't as literal for us as it was for Aristotle, but it's still something very important. Okay, so Aristotle shares with the perspectives I've developed so far this idea of the audience as judges, the relationship of communication being practical, relational. But now I want to show how he goes further, and in two main respects. So the first is that he argues um, for um, a, a deep conjoining between what's effective and what's ethical in communication. And then he's going to develop even more the conjoining of what's ethical and what's whole personal. So let me try to explain each of those ideas. So first of all, what does Aristotle actually mean by ethics? And I think one thing that's helpful about his perspective is that ethics, too, can very often in our society become a kind of technocratic expertise, a technocratic approach. Right? So again, this is good news in some way for philosophers. It gives us jobs on government commissions. Um, and of course, it's important. We need to feed ethics into that level of governmental administration. But it can be misleading. It can make us think that all there is to ethics is a kind of right and wrong answer that the experts, again, the, the, the technical experts, the philosophical experts in this case, can give us. But Aristotle's perspective on ethics is much deeper. Ethics for him is fundamentally what aims at the flourishing of individuals 
as part of a well-ordered political community. So we often, again, in this modern kind of administrative parlance, use ethics only to mean limits and constraints. We think it's just about ruling things out in the sort of way I was talking before. What do we rule out as pandering? But Aristotle says it's really a perspective on humans, how humans can flourish in our interactions in the long run. Now, you might think, well, that doesn't make it very helpful. We were looking for a line, and now I'm telling you Aristotle doesn't approach ethics in this kind of line-drawing way. But I actually think that what he directs our attention to is precisely not that the elite needs to find a line to guide their framing and reframing, but that we have to think about the ability of auditors to judge for themselves whether that line has been crossed. So an Aristotelian perspective would suggest that the ethics committees in psychology may be looking somewhat in the wrong place. The issue isn't just whether they get the lines right according to their lights, but rather that the listeners themselves are ultimately going to be the ones who have to judge whether they think the lines um, have been correctly um, drawn. And Aristotle goes on then to suggest that in the long run, and this again sounds very naive when you first hear it, so bear with me for a moment. In the long run, he suggests, um, as Cain said, in the long run we'll all be dead. Aristotle suggests that in the long run, truthful communication is going to be more effective. Now again, that sounds naive, and again, he didn't say that because he was living in this primitive time and it had never occurred to anyone that speakers might lie. On the contrary, again, he was living at a time of great concern about sophistry, misuse of rhetoric. Um, That was all around him. But what he suggested was that fundamentally, again, humans have a natural disposition for the true. And that's that's sort of part of his whole philosophical perspective, And so rhetoric needs to be ethical because it's contributing to that basic human enterprise. It's not just a technical question about whether it's going to be more effective if it's ethical, but actually its whole purpose is to be part of this flourishing of the human um, community. Okay, so finally let me get into some of the weeds now of Aristotle's approach, and I'm going to give you some Um, of his terms in Greek, some of his ideas um, now in some detail. So famously, Aristotle talked about three basic modes of proof that we use when we judge communication or when we attempt to make a communication. So the first one is to make logical arguments, to make arguments, which Aristotle called logos, And that's broadly like the competence dimension that I talked about before. But then he has two rather than only one other dimensions. Remember, the psychologist just had warmth. Aristotle breaks that into two. He talks about ethos or character on the one hand and then pathos or emotions on the other So that's already a bit richer than what we find in current approaches. But what I think is most interesting is that Aristotle shows us how these three are really interwoven. So in the earlier picture, as I presented it, it's like there are just these two dimensions and they mechanically interact or one might undercut 
the other, right? We have confidence chugging along, and then warmth might come in and kind of undercut it and block it from being listened to. Whereas what Aristotle suggests is actually each of these three is like a Russian doll, you know, those Russian dolls containing some element of the other two within it. So they're much more closely interwoven. It's not just a simple one-off judgment about competence warmth. It's actually a very intimate way that people have of thinking about how logos, ethos, and pathos um, interact. So let me show you a little bit how that um, works, and I'll just illustrate how ethos or character itself for Aristotle has each of the other dimensions closely um, interwoven with it. So he says, well, we might um, think that someone has competence, so, but we might think that they lack practical wisdom, that they're not the kind of person that you can rely on to advise you in some basic way about what their competence means, what its implications are for action. And in that case, Aristotle would say that's a kind of character failure because this person is putting themselves forward as a competent speaker, but they might actually be thought to lack some crucial dimension of translating their competence into um, good judgment. Or the second thing that might happen is that, well, we might think, okay, they have competence and they have good judgment, but we might think that they lack courage to really stand up for their convictions, or they might lack the humility to listen to people who have other points of view. And those are also failures of character that can generate um, distrust. And then I think most kind of puzzling to me, at least as an Aristotle scholar, he says, we might think that a speaker ticks off all those boxes so far, so they have competence, they have good judgment, they have the virtues, but we might still feel that emotionally they lack what he calls goodwill, eunoia, towards me, the listener, or my group. And I think if you come to the rhetoric from a knowledge of Aristotle's ethics, for example, that's a hard case to understand because if someone is supposed to have good character and virtue, how could they be judged to lack um, goodwill? That seems strange. But I actually think this is one of the most interesting things because it's really Aristotle pointing out this personal dimension of communication. I listen to communication in terms of practically its implications for my concerns and interests. In a broad sense, that doesn't mean every communication is telling me what to do tomorrow, but it means if I distrust the goodwill of the speaker to be oriented towards those concerns, I'll still distrust them, even if I think they're generally virtuous, generally competent. Okay, so Aristotle then talks about, well, if those kinds of, what are the emotions that might um, generate lack of trust in someone's goodwill? And how can we convert from a bad will, seeming bad will, to a goodwill? And I think what's most interesting in his analysis, he, he lists at least six negative emotions. I'm not going to go through them all. Um, don't worry. But we might particularly look at um, fear and anger. And I'm going to especially focus on anger. I think both of them actually have a lot in common. And Aristotle says that we feel anger 
precisely towards speakers who show who we think are showing hubris or contempt. And he says, those who speak badly of and scorn things that we take most seriously and who, quote, do not care if we are suffering. And so he famously said, this is why we become angry at those announcing bad news, okay? Because we judge these speakers to be indifferent And we take that indifference itself to be a latent kind of hostility. If we don't trust that they're well-disposed towards us, we will distrust them as ill-disposed. And again, much research on climate change communication shows that it fails precisely when speakers are perceived to be talking down to lay audiences, to show contempt for traditional worldviews, or to be remaining indifferent to the cultural and social loss that um, such change might um, portend. Okay, so Aristotle's suggestion then is that to convert these negative emotions, this sense of perceived superiority, which is read as indifference and which can generate this whole range of negative emotions and so distrust, even of speakers who are judged to be competent, um, what he suggests is that we speakers have to find ways to um, neutralize those negative emotions um, by demonstrating their concern for the audience's understanding and, broadly speaking, for their interests. Um, and so he talks about humility, and some of his um, interpreters he, have even gone so far as to talk about sacrifice, Because one way to show that you care about your audience's interests is to show that you might be willing to put them before your own. Um, And just on a very um, uh, everyday note, Aristotle actually in the rhetoric gives the example of dogs who won't bite someone who's sitting down. Right? Because when they're sitting down, they demonstrate a kind of humility. And he's getting at this sort of visceral um, reaction against perceived superiority um, that um, can lead to distrust. Okay, so let me close then by finally bringing that perspective back to the case of the ice sheets. Um, What should those scientists have done when they were facing this problem of having some... having an awareness that there's this relevant factor to sea level rise, but not being able to communicate it to the level of their um, usual professional standards in giving quantitative assessments. Now, here, um, one, both of the um, uh, routes that I mentioned as possible before were, in a sense, clinging to the professional Um, role to an extent of being unwilling to even try to talk about this third factor because of not being able to do it to the standards of the usual professional expectation. But here's a third option then that might have been taken. The third option, which in some sense might have been both the most humble and the most practical, would have been to exercise a kind of subjective expert judgment based on evidence, but reporting what's known as expert elicitation, um, reporting um, experts' sent judgments about the range of possible um, estimates for this factor, 
while acknowledging that this communication can't be made, couldn't then have been made, to the same level of precision as the other numbers in the report. So being very transparent about the basis for this assessment, but putting numbers on it based on this expert judgment. And the thought is that doing this would show a kind of humility and being willing to go beyond the particular um, usual kind of withholding of a statement until it can be sufficiently um, documented to a certain level of precision, while showing a concern for the audience's interests. Because the thought is the audience needs to have some way to get a grip on this possible factor in sea level rise. You can't just say to them, there's potentially this factor, but sorry, we're not willing to help you understand what it might mean. So by engaging in this sort of expert elicitation, scientists would precisely have been showing a demonstrated concern for their audience's interests, for their helping them to think through the practical implications of scientific knowledge given the existing uncertainty um, at the time. Okay, so what I've suggested then is how the art of rhetoric can help scientists to earn trust by displaying equity and humility. And that's the positive vision that Aristotle can offer. But I just want to conclude um, by acknowledging um, some real challenges very briefly, um, just in a couple of words, for scientists in walking this tightrope. Because I think this is the right approach, but that doesn't mean that it's an easy path to follow. And of course, part of the challenge is that other speakers about climate change may not be bound by the same ethical norms. They may not consider themselves to be bound by the same ethical norms. Um, and in a way, most fundamentally for this argument, there's a kind of opposite problem. I focus so much on how can scientists earn trust, but there's an opposite problem that they might seem to usurp democratic authority. And I, that's a whole other talk in a way, but I want to acknowledge that this is a tightrope and the relationship between um, scientific expertise and democratic judgment is a really challenging one. Um, but I hope to have persuaded you that it's one that's it's important for, as important for us to think about as it was um, for Aristotle. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Melissa, and thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I have to say it is an enormous pleasure to have Melissa here. Uh, she is a, a classicist and political theorist of the highest order, and uh, it's very humbling to be able to participate in the talk, and a really great pleasure, too, because her work is work that I've followed for many years, and it, it, there are few classicists that communicate as effectively and, in, in, and bring the complexity of those texts to modern debates as Melissa does while being true to their complexity. So what I thought I'd do is I, ha I have sort of two general comments, but actually it turns out that this semester I'm teaching Aristotle, but also Hobbes, uh, Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century political theorist, probably known to many of you for being a, seemingly a rather unpleasant uh, philosopher. But in, in some ways, maybe I'm just cutting my cloth as I find it, 
the, the, it provides a, a nice framing for me to think about Melissa's problem. And, and, and in her written paper, Melissa says that, you know, how to communicate the science of climate change to non-scientists really is one of the great challenges of our time. And I think, I think she's right. And I think it is a problem that has been absolutely uh, at the forefront in Australia, which I'll come back to in a minute. But as I said, I've been teaching Aristotle and Hobbes, and I think Aristotle and Hobbes are two of the greatest uh, uh, sort of an analysts of the relationship between politics and rhetoric in the modern uh, canon. And, and if you'll indulge me just for one minute, there is, because I was just talking about it the other day in class, there's a wonderful moment in, in Hobbes' work where he, he takes and Melissa will know this moment, where he takes a famous image of Lucian, who was another famous Greek order. Uh, Lucian had an image of Hercules, uh, this great Greek figure, uh, as an order, leading chain men around by their ears. Uh, and this was to demonstrate the power of oratory. But Hobbes, in his wonderful way, completely inverts the meaning, right? And he says, in fact, this, for Hobbes, this demonstrated all the sort of, the you know, instead of, really the power of the order, for, for Hobbes it was the need to prevent orders from doing terrible damage to the city, to the commonwealth. So uh, rhetoric is in some sense uh, involved in the, in the dissolution of the commonwealth rather than protecting it. Um, and for Hobbes himself, he turned the language around and said, look, in fact we should think of the civil laws as kind of chains which bind men to their uh, to their covenants, to their agreements, and he used Lucian's image of, of their being fastened from one end to the lips of man to their ears. So for Hobbes, rhetoric was dangerous and we had to control it because it could dissolve the community in all kinds of ways. But of course, also wonderfully, Hobbes was himself a master orator and he used the art of rhetoric to make this point. So this leads to my first sort of thought. I have two claims that I'm going to make. Both of them are sort of question invitations to Melissa. The first one I'm going to call the problem of uptake. Uh, and, and here's the thought. So I think Aristotle's rhetoric really does provide a very powerful framework for addressing what Melissa calls the problem of cold competence, or the challenge of cold competence. But I couldn't help but think as I was reading the paper and reflecting on the current debate in Australia that it needs to be supplemented, or perhaps more critically, uh, uh, is weak in the face of the analysis or a proper analysis of the relations of power shaping the reception or uptake of uh, social and political communication. So I guess what's missing for me in the Aristotelian story is an analysis of, I guess, the political and social uptake of the message. And of course, uh, being in New Zealand, this is something else that John Pocock uh, famously taught us as well. So, you know, as the song says, we have a, we have a real, what we have here is a, a, certainly a failure to communicate, but it's not only a problem of communication, right? It's a problem of motivation and will. Uh, another quote from Hobbes, you know, I can bring you my reasons, but you must bring me your attention. So Melissa focuses, I think, really brilliantly on this idea of the relational dimension of the uptake of logos, but we need to hear about the social and political context of the uptake of logos, the surrounds of logos, if I could put it, and not just the tweeters and bloggers, but the extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful social and economic interests that play a part in shaping the motivation and will of those who are receiving the message. And here I couldn't help, for those of us in the room who were around in 2009 and 2010, those extraordinary 
television commercials uh, paid for by the natural resources industry that showed, you know, working moms climbing into pickup trucks and driving to the, to the mine, or the guy in the RMs and the sort of uh, chinos, you know, talking about his kids in the playground and, and, and the work that he was able to get through the natural resources industry. And even the slogan, I remember the slogan was something like, carbon tax pain, no climate gain. They were even appealing to the value proposition. If you really cared about solving climate change, you wouldn't support this carbon tax legislation that the government was proposing. And it sort of reminded me of just the, 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 the density of the, the context in which the uptake of messages are heard and received. You know, there's a wonderful book written by Ian Shapiro, an American political theorist, who analyzed how the inheritance tax movement was defeated in the States because... Basically, a vast majority of people who, who would have no chance ever of having, ever having to pay inheritance tax came out against it because of the power in which the rhetorical frame was set for communicating that message. So I think this is a very compelling argument that Melissa makes, but I think the uptake of messages in the public sphere, just because they're not unmediated, just because there are extraordinarily powerful interests that shape them, we probably need to supplement Aristotle not only with Hobbes, but probably with, you know, I don't know, a Marxian analysis of false consciousness or, you know, a, a sort of power knowledge analysis. So I'll call that the problem of uptake. And it's really an invitation to Melissa and perhaps people in the room to ask her about the very last words of her, her talk. Now, the second general thought, which I'll conclude on, is what I'm going to call slightly more pretentiously uh, the problem of plurality and co-judgment. Because I actually think this is a really exciting part of Melissa's talk, at least for me, this idea of co-judgment. And here she and, and another wonderful American political theorist, uh, Daniel Allen, I think, have done some really wonderful work. And it connects to what uh, Melissa was talking about in relation to expert elicitation. And, and, and I guess what I'll call the, the kind of calibration between democratic authority and scientific authority. I think this is a really interesting problem. So Melissa's argument, I think, is really attractive here. She she puts forward the idea that the idea of experts and citizens, when they're communicating effectively, when there is both logos and ethos and pathos in the right sort of uh, order between the speaker and the audience, when that's working, we have something like the creation of the conditions in which co-judgment can, can occur. And I think that's a very powerful idea, so that the audience listening to the climate change scientists not only is able to understand the argument, but is in a position to trust that the argument is being offered in the right spirit, and the speaker shares some of the values and interests of the people listening to them. And I think this can have a very strong democratic character as well. And of course, it informs a lot of work in contemporary uh, deliberative democratic theory that that David and others have been been interested in for, for many years now. But of course, there's another, I guess, basic challenge. And this is that as Melissa says, rhetoric might indeed work most effectively when aligned with truth. But public reasoning, the way we argue about public things, is deeply plural. And the force of truth claims in public, in public spheres is not simply a function of the presence or absence of manipulation or deception, but it's also a function of what the American political philosopher John Rawls called uh, conditions of reasonable disagreement. It's not, and here I'm not thinking of the outrageous climate denialist. 
I'm thinking of the kind of reasonable disagreement that, 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 that legitimately occurs about both ends and means of public policy or debates about public values. And sometimes those things happen simultaneously. So, for example, I do think there's a genuine uh, sort of reasonable disagreement between the way we think about the economic consequences of one kind of climate change policy or another. I mean, I have my own view about that, about who's wrecking the economy and in which direction it goes. But I think these are conditions which are just as important to the kind of lexical uh, you know, ordering of public debate when it comes to truth claims as issues of manipulation and deception. And I think, again, uh, Aristotle probably needs to be supplemented by uh, some of the work in contemporary democratic theory around those problems. But having said that, I think one idea I take from Melissa's talk, and here I'll finish, is that climate change scientists and experts can find, I think, moments where they can acknowledge that. And I think it, it, it's that moment where there's a kind of alignment between ethos and pathos. And that's the democratic moment, I think, in climate change debates, when the expert and the citizen become co-judges and each switches places, each changes uh, perspective. And this switching of perspectives, this co-judging, is, of course, at the very heart of Aristotle's conception of citizenship. So, in a way, Melissa's work brings us right back to the heart of his political theory. So I'll stop, I'll stop there and invite some questions. Well, I'd love to respond, but I actually don't want to just keep talking, so let's have some questions, and then hopefully I can come back. Yeah. Um. Uh, Melissa, thank you very much for a highly, highly stimulating talk. I think you're researching uh, the right subject. Uh, my name's Nick Rowley. I've worked on climate change over a number of years. Um, I fear you may be overcomplicating a little. Um, in your title, you talk about climate change, but I think you were talking about climate science. And there are a number of different dimensions, of course, to climate science. Some of it is simply about what has happened some is about what is happening, mm -hmm. and some has a predictive nature about what may happen. Mm -hmm. And many of the predictions about what may happen indicate to us as humans that we have an existential problem. Okay? Now then the real difficulty is the people who present the news of the existential problem can't really help us in terms of what we need to do about it, because they have no experience of understanding or developing energy policy. They have no experience of how it is you might develop carbon markets within government. Yeah. They have no experience yeah. of investment problems. So it's a little bit like being told, um, you know, I'm really sorry. I've looked at the evidence. It seems that what's shown up is that you do have cancer that is either going to kill you within four years or within eight yeah. years. One's immediate response is, well, please tell me, what can I do about it? And the person who's told you actually doesn't have the expertise. Yeah. So yeah. that's the real, yeah. that's, I think, the cusp of the challenge. The only other thing I'd say, Duncan, yeah. I thought your response was quite beautiful, but we should also think about Hume and Hume yeah. and the distinction between is questions and ought questions. Yeah. Science is looking at is questions. Yeah. Politics, public policy, is about ought questions. The tension there will always be with us. It's a real tension. And, you know, I won't go on and talk about the IPCC yeah. and how the tightrope is constantly being walked. Yeah. But thank you for a fantastic presentation. And maybe if you just want to comment a bit on a bit of a rambling intervention from me. Yeah. Thank you.
you so much. It's a, those are wonderful comments, as indeed were Duncan's. Um, let me pick up on the Hume um, point, because I think that one of the reasons that democratic theorists have tended to neglect this problem of science and communication is because I think we rely on too simple a fact-value distinction or a means-end distinction. So many of our colleagues in, in political theory will say the real action is values. You know, okay, there's the facts, but what democracy is really about is values, and that's what we're interested in. And, and I, while I agree with you that there is, of course, there's at bottom, there's some kind of fundamental distinction between what Aristotle would call theoretical reason and practical reason, um, but at the same time, I, I think that we need to do more reflection on how those things interact. So, for example, facts may rule out certain um, courses of action as simply not viable, that people's values might otherwise lead them to prefer. And I think that was behind my concern with, um, say, the nuclear example. I mean, setting aside what one thinks about nuclear, but the idea of putting something on a list just in order to encourage people to take the message seriously seemed to me potentially dangerous because, you know, now again, there's a kind of second order problem who's making that call and, and so on. But well, so while I take the, the is-ought point, and, and I think your example of the um, cancer diagnosis is very poignant, um, I also think that we can't so easily kind of think, oh, well, the facts are what they are and then any policy um, sort of, you know, so, so for example, one might think, well, with certain facts, and I think one has to presume some basic underlying value assumptions of a very general kind, that might, for example, suggest, well, it's reasonable that something needs to be done. Now, then what the something is is going to be subject to plural disagreement. And, you know, but it seems to me there may be more interaction there, perhaps, than um, our, our standard picture um, uh, allows. I'll just close with, I mean, your example of the cancer um, uh, uh, diagnosis that reminded me of this real case of the Italian earthquake specialists. I don't know if people remember this case from a couple of years ago, where there was a board essentially composed of seismologists who had been charged by the Italian state with responsibility for um, kind of making sure that not excessive damage was suffered from earthquakes, and then the government prosecuted them on the grounds that, um, you know, they, so uh, that they had failed to give a, a proper warning of the likelihood of damage, and they, this was the Lachila um, case. But what was interesting about that case was, in a way, part of my reaction to that was exactly yours, was to say, why would you have seismologists on that board? Or not only seismologists, you need architects and civil engineers, and the whole concept of the nature of the responsibility is kind of being misunderstood or misplaced. So thank you very much for your, for your question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I've got uh, two practical problems that you might be able to tell me the answer of whether or not Hobbes, Hume or Aristotle is a better responded to. Uh, I'm a bit of a crass political scientist myself and I failed, almost failed my political philosophy course because Douglas McCullum was too far to the right for me <laughs> back at UNSW in the early 70s and George Shipp was even further to the right I should have come to Sydney University and done general philosophy and 
been brainwashed by the postmodernist feminists and I might have been a more rounded, all-rounded philosopher. But my, my question is, on the question of rhetoric, I was listening to our national broadcaster on the radio on the way here, PM program, and they were debating the, uh, the environmental lawyers who had taken uh, an overseas coal company to court and stopped yeah. a multi-billion dollar project yeah. to save a snake and a lizard. And our Prime Minister, Tony Abbott's response was, jobs, growth, investment. These people that are opposing these are snakes and lizards themselves. Mm. Now, is that a rhetorical employ uh, <laughs> a, 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 in terms of practical and rhetorics that, 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 that you are covering? That's my first example. Yeah. And the second one is um, I'm doing an Agent Orange benefit at 4 o'clock on Sunday at Addison Road Community Centre for the victims of Agent Orange. And when they first came back from the war in Vietnam, the veterans were told, you're not Anzac hero soldiers, you're malingerers and greedy because you're trying to find extra problems from your service to your country. Is that a rhetorical question, yeah. the two positions? Yeah. And I say it all in the context of... Uh, I got failed by, uh, in one essay by Professor Douglas McCullum for arguing uh, a political economy approach to Marx and not looking enough at the superstructure. I notice you don't come up to that level because Marx was said to have not taken into account climate change because he was too much of a political economist. And is the answer to that lie in the superstructure if one wants to remain a Marxist and believe in climate change and stopping it? Thank you yeah. for changing it. Thank you. Well, so the, the idea of, I mean, it's a very poignant case, of course, the Agent Orange case that you talk about, and the idea of saying you're not a war hero, you're a greedy malingerer is straight out of the rhetorical handbook, actually. It's a technique known as paradiastole in Greek, which is precisely redescribing, for example, a virtue as a vice. So there are very famous examples um, in Thucydides, for example, of a very similar kind, but I think that example is a classic, perfect example of a rhetorical um, kind of um, move. And in a way, I think what's interesting about it is, you know, so what, so if that's a rhetorical move, what Aristotle is doing in his rhetoric is to tell us we have to come up with rhetoric that can counter that. It's not enough to just say that's you know unfortunate or you know it's unfair or to call a foul or something like that. But Aristotle, for example, might say you know one rhetorical move to respond to that would be a kind of unmasking move where you say. Why are these people being redescribed? Well, because of the cost to the country that is perceived if we have to honor their claims. Um, so, so, you know, I think there's Aristotle's point in a way is that there's rhetoric on both sides. And that was what I meant by saying he's not naive. It's not when he says it's fundamentally truth is going to work, that's not because he can't see that. Sometimes people lie in the public sphere. Of course, people lie and people exaggerate and people, you know, redescribe, and that's kind of part of the common currency. Um, but that's why he thinks it's all the more important to be able to try to get the logos, ethos, and pathos working 
in a way that will make the better case credible. Because if you just cede the ground to the misusers of rhetoric, you know, in a way you've you've given up. Um, so there was a lot in, in what you asked, but I, I hope that um, you know at least I can assure you that yes, that is rhetoric, and it was very much um, you know in the purview of I think what Aristotle and, and I were trying to talk about. I think I think that's rhetoric. I mean, I was reading a little bit about that case. It's obviously you know I, I've just been reading about it in the newspapers. Um, and, you know, I think one of the interesting issues there is um, people are, you know, in a sense, once you have laws that allow something to be claimed, then people go to court and claim it. They wouldn't be able to claim it if the laws weren't already in place. So the onus is on what the laws should be, not on the action of the people going to court to try to, um, you know, uh, bring laws to bear. I, I, think, I think that's really where the question lies. Hi, I'm Nick. Um, I'm not actually a philosopher or an ethicist. I'm actually a physio, and I was thinking about similar issues with health promotion and communicating because there's a lot of experts like doctors, engineers, and yeah. that sort of thing. So if we haven't had a background in training in philosophy or ethics, where might we might start to think about these ideas? Um, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know... I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of these principles in a way are principles that, in, in some sense, I mean, this is the beauty of democratic ethics and politics, is that a lot of it is latent in the public culture. So, you know, if, if you were able to, to sort of understand what I was talking about, it was because it resonated with something in your experience. So I think in some way, you know, you can start by reflecting on you know, are there cases where I think someone's communication has crossed the line? You know, in my experience, has someone been um, misusing, framing, or, you know, have I distrusted someone because they weren't willing to take the time to listen to my concerns? So actually, in an earlier version of the paper, we had an example of a colleague who had a very difficult, actually, I think it was a sort of physical uh, skeletal, musculoskeletal problem, and was given very different advice by two doctors, you know, about whether an operation was needed and which operation, and it just felt like it was something that he couldn't decide on the basis of competence. And so he ended up going with the doctor whom he thought trusted, took the time to listen to him, took his concerns seriously, tried to address them and make sure that he understood, and in the absence of being able to make a judgment on the medical science, and maybe it was even a case of uncertainty about, you know, no, maybe no one could have been sure which problem it was, that kind of warmth judgment actually ended up seeming like, you know, a, a, a good route. So, so I would say, you know, trust your experience in a way and start to reflect on it. But then there are lots of resources available to kind of think about and learn about philosophy on the internet, online. Um, there's the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a very reputable, kind of well-curated um, resource. There are these Philosophy Bites podcasts um, that, that, that David mentioned, which are kind of fun and um, just kind of a way in to the subject um, that you might enjoy. Um, so there's, you know, I think if you're, if you're motivated, I would, you know, suggest that, that you start with some of those. Hi, um, over here. I just wanted to pick back up on the existential risk point. Yeah. Um, and communicating existential risk. Yeah. Uh, it can be very difficult because, you know, we just don't know 
what's yeah. going to happen. You know, and I really loved what you said about uh, making the audiences feel as if they're co-judges. Yeah. And I wondered if the right response, and whether you would agree with this, is to make audiences in discussion about existential risk more so than ever feel like they're co-judging mm-hmm. and feel like it's up to them as well to decide whether there is a risk you know, and mm. whether there will be problems. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. And I think absolutely, in a way, again, to invite, because I think, again, a lot of the IPCC, for example, has been sort of stymied by, you know, can we say that it's an existential risk? Can we quantify what that means? What does it mean? But again, maybe the right way to think about it is to say to people, what to you, you know, would be an existential risk, a kind of intolerable risk? You know, what the loss of what, potentially? And, and, you know, how do you think about that in a way that's a kind of incalculable thing compared to other things that we calculate in ordinary life. I mean, so I was actually looking at the most recent IPCC, the 2015, to see what they did with the ice sheets, um, just in case anyone asked me. And um, there was this sentence, um, which actually speaks very much to your point, which was, um, so the way they now comment on it is they say, abrupt and irreversible ice loss, dot, 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 um, is possible but current evidence and understanding is insufficient to make a quantitative assessment. Now, you know, in some way that's such a cold sentence, and yet it's really underneath it is exactly this, you know, very poignant, deep question of, you know, what does it mean to lose the possibility of a future that looks anything like the past or the future we thought that we were going to have and the next generation was going to have, and, you know, how do we communicate that. So I think it's a really good question. And again, I think it's not one that, you know, technocrats have a monopoly on answering. I think it's it's really something that, you know, that 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 people, you know, need to turn to their own experience and um and their own reflections, you know, collectively, um perhaps um, um to to discuss. Oh hi. Um in, in Australia, the debate on climate change has mostly been political rather than yeah. about policy and yeah. planning. And I guess the political debate by the sceptics and the naysayers has really yeah. used the rhetoric of war and terrorism, yeah. um, whereas the, the debate from the policy and the planners is more aligned with science, uh, mitigation and yeah. adaptation. Um, do you think for us to really get our message across, we need to start adopting that um, uh, more expressive way and more um, aggressive way of, of constructing this debate, or would that would that um, make us fall into that um, um, that position of, of distrust from the audience? Yeah, thank you. It's a it's an important question. So so I have kind of a mixed response to that, and of course I'm not as familiar with the Australian debate as as many of you will be. But broadly speaking. You know, one danger of the war terrorism kind of language to try to turn, you know, adopt that is what Aristotle, what I didn't really say, I was over time, so I didn't say what Aristotle says about fear. And Aristotle says about fear what actually a number of psychology studies have also shown, which is that if you just make people afraid, you can make them feel hopeless, and then they just switch off because they feel that there's nothing that they can do. So I think a kind of purely terrorizing kind of strategy is actually could be counterproductive. And another um, colleague has done work on sort of apocalyptic rhetoric um, and has suggested there are are dangers, 
in turning to that, again, Hobbes you know, famously uses kind of apocalyptic rhetoric to try to establish the state, but you can also, um, you know, there's the sort of danger of um, seeming to have oversold it or of just um, paralyzing people in, in response. Yeah. 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 Well, so this is what I was going to say. Right. Well, good. No, great. Sorry. Yeah. So this is what I was going to say on the other side, though, is that, you know, as I heard what you were saying about the policy planners, part of what's the problem, I think, is that in a way, climate change response itself has become this kind of technocratic industry to an extent. And so it's all couched in risk management terms. And, you know, some of that is good because it, you know, obviously it's important and it can be constructive. But in a sense, it doesn't get to the existential loss kind of question. And so I think in a way the challenge is, I think there has to be some third way. You know, that's not just terrorism and fear and kind of exaggeration. And the other danger of that is climate change is, you know, a huge, the huge problem, but it's not the only problem in the world. And we need to think about how it interacts with poverty and inequality and, you know, in very real ways when we talk about adaptation. And sometimes the apocalyptic frame can kind of um, uh, you know, sort of obliterate those concerns. So I think there's some kind of third way, which is not technocratic, not aggressive and destructive, but somehow trying to connect with this, with this recognition that there are real discontinuities already and potentially even more grave discontinuities in the world of our experience and what we can think that the world is going to be like and the way that we can plan our lives in that is going to be fundamentally altered and, and kind of, you know, and to, to, to sort of help people to see that that's what's at stake, which is kind of the framework for all of our projects, um, perhaps, you know, might be, might be a way forward. Hi, my name's Alex. Here. I work for an environmental NGO. And I just wanted to go back to talking about the Carmichael coal mine, which was yeah. mentioned earlier by the gentleman. Yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, perhaps earlier on in the week, Senator George Brandis stood up and um, talked about the 10,000 jobs which have been lost by this um, coal mine um, not going ahead. That's completely inaccurate. A few, uh, few weeks, months ago, I'm not sure, recently, uh, Dani, who were proposing to build the mine, um, basically owned up to the fact that it would only actually create about one th- less than 1,500. So either George Brandis was lying or he um, was factually incorrect and didn't have that information. So the question really is how can... Um, environmental NGOs and other um, communicators of climate change stand up against unethical communications. And there are some people within uh, social justice movements who will say, why should the devil have all the tricks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that last thought, I think, is a a really um, powerful one. And, you know, there's a sense in which you might think, like, the whole project that we embarked on here, which is you know, what are the professional ethics of scientists, you know, you might think, well, is that fiddling while Rome burns in some sense, you know? And I think there is a concern about that. But at the same time, I guess I do believe that um, if we undermine the... It, it would be eating our seed corn, in a way, to um, stoop to 
the level of misusing science. Um, because I think if we fundamentally, if we undermine that public trust, you can't get it back or not very easily. And that kind of undermines the whole basis for a democratic politics. Now, there are people who think maybe, you know, climate change is so serious we, you know, we can't afford democracy either. I mean, that, that's a real debate, I think, that, you know, some people are raising. So, but as long as one is committed to staying within that framework, then I think having to maintain a credibility of um, trust in communication is really important. Now, having said that, I don't have a, um, you know, I'm not an expert in the doing. <laughs> this is the thing about philosophy professors. Um, but um, I, I actually was reading a book that I would recommend generally if you're looking for a how-to book. It's by Randy Olson, and it's called Don't Be Such a Scientist. Um, and he's actually somebody who has a PhD in biology from Harvard and then went to USC film school and became an actor and film director. So he's kind of writing from that perspective. But the thing that he says that's really interesting in a broad way for your question is he says, for example, a lot of the official guidance that scientists get on communicating climate change is sort of, you know, be very, very careful and effectively defensive. So always only speak on your own terms, you know, you know, kind of fend off any questions that you think are going in the wrong direction, you know, because people are so worried that their words are going to be misused. And of course, it's a legitimate worry. It's not a stupid worry. But his response as a kind of actor um, was to say, um, think about, he was to say precisely if you do that, if you're perceived as fending off and only wanting to be and, you know, doing all this, then you, um, that in itself can be seen as the kind of arrogant superiority that in effect Aristotle was talking about and can turn people off because it seems like you think you're better than them. You don't want to engage on their terms, even if their terms you think are, you know, misleading or silly. And so his suggestion was to adopt the improv technique, which is yes and. Now, you have to be very careful about using this technique, okay? I'm not going to prescribe exactly how it might work in the case that you're thinking about. But his sort of thought more basically was somehow finding a way to validate the basic premise of what's underlying the concern of what's being said to you and then building on that to show why. So, you know, one thing you might say is, well, you know, I understand that people are concerned with job loss, you know, but here's the, you know, or sorry, not but, and, right? Okay, so it's that sort of thing. So you try to get at to rather than kind of saying, ah, it's wrong, blah, blah, you know, which, which you know, might be effective in some contexts um, and, you know, is, you know, arguably, you know, I mean, as you presented it, I, I don't know the case in the detail that, that others will, but, you know, might be true. Um, but... Um, but that there might be ways of communicating that, that that seem more responsive to the underlying concerns of the, at least the people who might hear the, communi- the misleading communication, if not the speaker themselves. So I guess that's the direction I would, I would um, go to. Yeah. Hi, my name's Judy Betts, and I teach communication at oh, UTS. You're an expert. Um, a couple of years ago the level of media coverage of climate change issues just kind of dropped and everything kind of went, went silent yeah. for a while. Um, I'm wondering if, whose responsibility is it to be communicating yeah. about climate change yeah. and who appears to be kind of falling down in that yeah. responsibility? Yeah, so I think that's an important question in, in two ways. So one is... 
you know, in a way, is my talk not asking way too much of the scientists? You know, I, I sometimes will have science grad students who come and hear me give these talks and kind of say, ah, oh, you know, I can't even get my PhD done, and now you're telling me I have to do this and that, and, you know, it's too difficult. And, um, and I think it is a real thing. And I guess what I would say there is wanting to turn to a more kind of institutional solution. So maybe, you know, the science academies need to take responsibility, as they do to a considerable degree, but maybe even more um, science journalism has become a much more um, kind of organized um, profession, you know, and there are important roles there. But I guess the final thought would be, so one reason, at least in my experience in the U.S. and the U.K., that I think the level went down of discussion was the recession, Right, that was kind of a big thing that happened when people said we have to talk about jobs, we can't talk about the climate. And I think there were a lot of, you know, missed opportunities, not for want of trying. A lot of people were trying, but you know, in a way that the path there was, for example, one thing that really struck me, I remember in the US was there was the cash for clunkers program where you know, um, you would get money for your old car, so you would buy a new car to stimulate the car industry. Now how easy would it have been to put an environmental screen into that program, right? But that wasn't done. So it was like with one side of the government's brain, it was saying, cash for clunkers, stimulate the economy. And then over there, there were the people worrying about climate change. And so to me, the sort of fundamental challenge when you say who's the responsibility in a way is for, to stop letting it be something that's in a silo by itself and to think, climate change, if it is this fundamental thing that we all face, then there are ways in which it has to affect all the decisions we make. It's not just something we sometimes think about with the environment, but we have to integrate it into our, our own personal, our professional, our um, you know, kind of political um, conversations, and maybe there were missed opportunities um, in that period to do that. So um, I just want to say one thing before yeah, I, I thank everyone, because I've been thinking a lot about and working a lot about uh, on adaptation, right? So moving from this idea of science as informing yeah. whether or not climate change is happening to how we actually respond to it. And one of the things that's happening there is exactly what you're talking about. So instead of it just being the scientists talking to people, we do have CSIRO and uh, Environment and Heritage in New South Wales are doing the science to downscale. And what cities are doing, what the city of Sydney did, for example, and if you live in the local government area of the city of Sydney, you should have a look at the new adaptation plan. They brought this to the public, right, and sort of showed heat maps to the public. And well, let's talk about what the impacts are going to be. What does this mean to you? What are the risks to your lives? And to, you know, to expand the risks that the city would look look at and to expand that response. And so even the skeptics in the room were silenced immediately because we're talking about their homes and the risk of their flooding and the heat waves that they're going to have to endure. And that was the level uh, at which the city uh, tried to engage people. And it was a very productive conversation. It dealt with that existential, what the hell's going to happen to us, but in a way that people had an impact and have had an impact on the design of the city of Sydney's adaptation plan. So I think there is a way, now I can think about it in in Aristotle's terms, which I hadn't before, so I appreciate that. Um, And in closing, I just wanted to say one thing about Brandis. Because I I love the term cold competence, but I think we need to incorporate cold incompetence as well um, into the discourse. So... With that, I just I want to thank uh, Melissa and thank Duncan as well for a really stimulating evening and uh, for your questions as well. So join me in thanking the two of you.